This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm delighted to introduce my two guests, Elise Nelson and Wendy S. Walters. Elise Nelson is assistant curator of 18th and 19th century European sculpture in the Department of European Sculpture and Decorative Arts at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Wendy S. Walters is concentration head in nonfiction and associate professor in the writing program of the School of the Arts at Columbia University. Elise and Wendy have co-curated Fictions of Emancipation, Carpo Recast, an exhibition that's currently on view at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The exhibition is built around a single object, a marble bust by French sculptor Jean-Baptiste Carpeau, and it is the first exhibition at the Met that examines Western sculpture in relation to the histories of transatlantic slavery, colonialism, and empire. Elise and Wendy are also the co-editors of the accompanying book, which is titled Fictions of Emancipation, Carpeau's Why Born Enslaved Reconsidered, in which historians and writers offer a critical re-examination of Carpeau's sculpture. In addition to Elise and Wendy, contributors include James Smalls, Adrian L. Childs, Caitlin Beach, Iris Moon, Rachel Hunter-Himes, and Sarah E. Lawrence. Elise and Wendy, welcome, and congratulations on both the exhibition and the book. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're delighted to be here. So as I said, the, the book and exhibition center around this one artwork, which is a sculpture bust by the 19th century French artist, Jean-Baptiste Carpeau. The sculpture has been referred to by the inscription on its base, Pourquoi naître esclave? Exclamation point, which translates to why born enslaved in English. Could you begin by describing the subject of the piece in your own words? Sure. Um, this bust depicts a woman of African descent whose arms and torso are confined with rope. Uh, the figure's neck and head are turned over her left shoulder and her upward gaze continues the spiraling motion of her body, signaling her resistance against the rope that binds her. Uh, the figure is naturalistically sculpted or modeled in vivid detail. Uh, the extraordinary modeling of her face conveys a sense of psychological complexity. Uh, we see her furrowed brow, her defiant upward gaze, her mobile expression, and the sense of anguish and defiance uh, conveyed in her pose and in her expression are also articulated in the inscription that you've mentioned on the sculpture's base, reading Pourquoi Natura Esclave, um, Why Born a Slave, or as we've translated it, Why Born Enslaved. Uh, this rope that I've mentioned you know, bites into her flesh, it crisscrosses her breasts, creating this kind of matrix of rope and body, creating windows uh, through which to view her body. And in the sense, you know, as we discuss in the book, uh, the representation of the moral issue of bondage also becomes problematically this point of departure for the sensuous play between rope and body. Uh, so it's an aesthetically appealing sculpture with a uh, moral question that it raises. The figure has a certain 
lifelikeness, which uh, gives it the appearance of a portrait, but she doesn't really represent a singular person. She represents a type of person. And it's that uh, complexity that the show and the book is really taking as a central paradox to the work. And so unsurprisingly, I suppose, given how um, emotive a piece it is, certain motivations have been ascribed to Carpo in discussions of this work. Historically, the sculpture was used as evidence of the artist's abolitionist sympathies. Would you talk about the complications around interpreting the work in this way? Sure. The uh, Wendy and I have talked a lot about, you know, the speculation around Carpo's abolitionist sympathies. And of course, firstly, you know, they're rooted in the work of art itself, uh, which could be seen to convey an anti-slavery message, um, albeit in the contradictory visual language of Black subjugation and inferiority that predominated during and after Carpo's time and which the book takes up. Uh, um, and evidence from Carpo's biography additionally is often cited to support the idea that he had, you know, deeply held convictions on the subject of slavery. For instance, his friendship with Alexandre Dumas-Fils, um, whose great-grandmother was an enslaved African and Saint-Domingue. Carpo made an incredible portrait bust of Dumas, and Dumas was also the godfather to his son. Um, and so Carpo is sometimes assumed to hold certain views because of his friendship with a person of mixed African heritage. Additionally, you know, he in his early career, Carpo was a student of Francois Rude uh, and came up in a generation of artists um, and of supporters, many of whom were kind of fervent Republicans. Um, and part of his artistic training also was um, the influence of the radical educator, Joseph Jacoteau. Um, he's often referred to um, in terms of his really early training in like the 1840s, um, before he goes uh, to Rome and even before his time in Paris as a Jacotiste. Um, and Jacoteau, the, Jacoteau's teachings really emphasize this idea that all men were invested with equal intelligence and with equal agency. Um, he was essentially a proponent of individualism. And the way Carpo imbues his figures with animacy and with psychological depth is often referred to as a product of this Jacotism, um, which should not be confused with the term Jacobin, of course. Um, and in fact, some of the controversy around his art, you know, accusations that he was, you know, too, his works were too infused with emotion um, and with energy or that they broke from the trap tradition of classical restraint had to do with this pedagogical training and the influence of Jacoteau. Um, so these biographical associations and early career influences may indeed have shaped Carpo's personal sentiments. Um, at some point in his life. However, to state that this bust, which was uh, created in 1868, is somehow an expression of deeply held and, you know, apparently suppressed republicanism would be to really ignore the facts of Carpo's career. Um, from the moment he emerged on the art scene in Paris, and um, he, Carpo aligned himself very much with 
with those in power. Um, and so after the coup and the Emperor Napoleon's rise uh, to, to power, he very much aligned himself with that power, um, creating propaganda and spending really the rest of his career currying favor with um, this conservative regime, uh, the emperor and the empress, and seeking uh, seeking commissions and seeking favor from them. Um, additionally, Carpo was an extremely commercial, entrepreneurial, um, enterprising artist who was really in touch with the norms and values of the Second Empire uh, bourgeois um, art buying class. And his works of art were very much catered to their interests and their tastes. And both of these things, um, you know, Carpo's uh, allegiance to uh, the emperor and desire to create works that would appeal to him, as well as his desire to cater to an art market um, and works of art that would sell on that art market. Um, you know, those are the things that I think really shape an understanding um, of this bust. Um, it's important to also consider that Carpo throughout his career, you know, he never expressed any affinity with republicanism, nor did he express any anti-slavery sentiments. Um, this is in stark contrast to Cordier, who positioned his ethnographic sculpture directly in relationship to abolitionist discourse, you know, claiming that he was on the cutting edge of science and of morality. Um, you know, so so Carpo was not a subversive, a political, not a politically subversive artist by any stretch of the imagination. He was quite the opposite. And one of the reasons why Born Enslaved is an object that provides a great lens through which to think about um, the representation of the black figure and the representation of abolition is because of the ways in which it represents the norms of his time and, and the kind of predominant mainstream views and uh, visualizations um, of these themes. Wendy, I don't know if you wanted to sort of continue uh, on, you know, ideas we were thinking about. Well, one of the other ways, you know, this work has been compelling and um, this, you know, this is, where the history in some ways breaks off is that the work um, is it, in some ways there, it is relatively rare uh, in that in its presentation of a black woman in the 19th century in sculpture. Um, and because of that, the work has come to stand in for all black women uh, from the 19th century. Um, just because there's a limited number of works that are executed with such uh, control and mastery, you know, as Carpo has uh, has done, uh, and the, the show does have works by other artists of the time who were doing really interesting um, depictions of Black people, such as Cordier. But um, there's just not a, there's not a whole lot of work from that period, and so. Part of the fascination with this work in the present tense, I think, has to do with the fact that it stands in for many works that just don't exist. Um, and the presumptions that have accompanied the, uh, the work as a representation um, are often pretty generous, uh, presuming that, you know, Carpeau was a liberal humanist, 
um, and that he, you know, he was um, seeing this work as a kind of uh, demonstration of a ethical and moral comportment. But what the show and the book try to do is is try to complicate that because there's there are other possibilities for why he was invested in this figure, some of which had to do with the aspirations of empire and his desire to ingratiate himself uh, to empire, um, to Napoleon III. And also uh, there were capitalist uh, benefits for him in doing the work, um, even if they, they weren't his first motivation. And I think to, you know, in addition, one of the, the, the questions that Wendy and I first grappled with is, you know, why create a depiction of a bound woman resisting enslavement in year 1868, 20 years after abolition has been achieved in the French, across or throughout the French Atlantic. And, um, you know, one of the reasons to, to sort of resist the uh, temptation to sort of rely on these sort of obscure early career biographical details and to really look at the immediate, very compelling political context surrounding him is that, you, you know, the, the discrepancy in time. I mean, if, if Carpo, if this were an expression of his feelings and, and deeply felt convictions around this, it, the work probably would have been created at a very different moment. And instead, what we see in the 1860s is this incredible resurgence in France of, of kind of abolitionist sentiments that really had a lot to do with a sense of national pride and sort of cultural superiority as they watched um, the American Civil War unfold and as uh, the United States emancipated, um, the emancipation happened in 1865. And so, you know, this work of art is created immediately kind of on the heels of that event, um, an event in which the French took immense interest um, and also immediately following the Universal Exposition that takes place in Paris in 1867, at which um, visual, the visual culture of abolition and discourse around abolition are really on full display. Um, and so Carpeau, as Wendy mentioned, the kind of capitalist entrepreneurial impulse is for him to sort of seize on this really popular theme at this moment and the French kind of investment and in, in, in really broadly European and Western uh, investment in this um, as people were interested in, in, in purchasing works of art such as this to signal their alignment with the this, uh, you know, moral turn. You know, there's a moment in the 19th century where there's a real interest in trying to organize people's understanding about the world. And that manifests in, you know, kind of scientific practices or what they're calling scientific practices at the time. Though now, you know, those practices have been disproven as science, um, ethnography, ethnology, taxonomy, um, all kinds of uh, modes of sorting, uh, you know, sorting the natural world and, you know, plants and animals in the, in the realm of uh, taxonomy. And then with, you know, ethnology um, and ethnography, we have uh, the rise of the field of anthropology and this desire to sort people 
also by qualities. Um, and, and so some of those qualities are presumed to be, you know, phenotype or physical characteristics of individuals. Um, and, you know, Carpeau's work is emerging at the same moment that these uh, scientific or pseudoscientific practices are gaining attention and prominence. And what's in interesting about these works is that the um, works aren't necessarily about recording the specific qualities of individuals, right? So there's these are not works that are um, representing specific people, but they're works that are re representing types of people. And so James Smalls writes about this in the book, um, in his essay, Dressing Up and Stripping Down, you know, that ethnography in some ways is a, an act of colonization. It's an act of uh, superscription, of uh, in some ways creating a representative out of an individual, uh, you know, a representative that serves a certain kind of colonial uh, role or ideal. Um, and so that creates, you know, that that is one of the other tensions that's in the show. We have a lot of figures that seem to represent people, but there's a hollowness in them um, because the the qualities of personhood are not ascribed to those figures. And is that what beyond, if the, if the people had been if their, you know, their names and who they were had been more carefully recorded, um, would that have gone some way to redress this, or is it a, is it a, a whole, a whole other issue? What well, I think that you know speaks to a certain degree of accountability, right? So if you're mm. going to say you're representing someone specifically, then there would be people who say, "Oh, you did that well," or "You didn't do that well," right? Um, and so there's no accountability when there is no uh, individual who is uh, who is named um, as the figure. Um, and so, you know, that that's the challenge, I think, that um, that's one of the challenges that the show kind of takes on is, you know, while models of that era you know, all models of that era, it was quite, quite frequent that models weren't given um, names or their names weren't recorded as part of the work that they were doing uh, for sculptors. Uh, it's a particular, particularly acute, uh, it has a particularly acute effect uh, in the representation of Black people who are also being classified as, a, as uh, categories of subhuman. Mm -hmm. at the same time. You know, and something that I think, you know, Wendy and I have discussed a lot in which um, is indirectly, you know, addressed by James and his really superb essay is that, you know, even if we knew their names and knew, knew the, um, their identities, as Wendy said, there's a sense of accountability, um, but in terms of the art historical work to be done, um, I think it's a mistake to think that um, knowing the names means that the work is done. 
um, that 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 is a sufficient mm -hmm. act of recuperation um, or redress, and that um, so that's why we make a really clear point in the introduction to this book as we you know speculate about who the woman might have been. Um, you know, there's a woman, Louise Cooling, an American woman who poses for an ethnographic photograph in 1864. Um, she, you know, bears a resemblance to the depictions by both Cordier and Carpeaux. Cordier's uh, woman from the colonies and Carpeaux's why born enslaved are thought to have been modeled from the same woman. Perhaps it's this woman. However, the book and the exhibition are not about sort of the woman who posed for this sculpture and um, it's, it's instead, it's about how Carpo really used her likeness. And I think that's, that's what, you know, James really kind of brilliantly brings to this book is, uh, really conveying the ways in which ethnographic sculpture, um, misrepresented notions of black personhood. Um, and, and so I think, I think, you know, it's sort of necessary, but not sufficient work to think about the the people um, who posed for these works anonymously. Yeah. What about the fact that this is a sculptural piece and not a painting or a drawing makes it a particularly resonant starting point for some of these issues? Right. I mean, sculpture, the first thing I, I would say in response to that, and which we really emphasize in both the exhibition and the book, is that sculpture is a reproducible medium. And that Carpo created this bust from the very beginning as, um, you know, a luxury object that could be replicated and made in multiples. And so at the 1869 Salon, when he debuts this work, he debuts it in marble and in bronze. And uh, this date corresponds with the opening of his atelier, where he was reproducing uh, his most uh, famous sculptures for a commercial market. Um, you know, the broader context here is that this work is derived from or, or, or uh, was developed from designs for an allegorical figure of Africa on a four continents fountain um, that would top a monument in Paris just south of the Luxembourg Gardens. And so Carpeau is taking um, a kind of narrative element from that larger sculpture and um, extracting it and then and then placing it in a more commercial um, mode of the, the bust format um, in order to uh, sell it and to market it. Um, and so he creates it, um, he starts reproducing it immediately. Um, I mentioned marble and bronze, uh, but then also uh, terracotta and plaster. And the works that are created in bronze, terracotta and plaster are all created from molds um, while marble has to be hand carved and so is more difficult to reproduce it's very very labor intensive um, plaster terracotta and bronze can all be poured or pressed into a mold and recreated as replicas so that's one aspect of you know sculpture that is of note um, but additionally um you know it's interesting when you look at the visual culture around abolition that for the most part abolition did not you know manifest kind of visual messages through paintings um and uh 
works of art that were actually created before abolition and that were kind of circulated to promote change uh, were largely ephemera and really small-scaled and expensive objects. Um, we know the famous 1787 anti-slavery uh, medallion made by Wedgwood, the entrepreneurial um, artisan uh, and his manufactory. You know, Wedgwood was an abolitionist who creates this work um, in order to be uh, reproduced and disseminated to promote change. Um, the Wedgwood medallion then becomes the icon of the abolitionist movements, not only in Great Britain, but then also um, in um, the United States and in France, where it's reprinted on abolitionist pamphlets. Um, so, you know, ephemera, inexpensive things. Um, and it makes sense that sculpture being larger, um, being expensive, being uh, difficult to move and more labor intensive to create is not an ideal medium through which to sort of agitate for change. And, and, and this is one of the reasons, you know, the works of art in this exhibition, you see sculpture is much more so aligned with the state and with the interests of the state. Um, because it typically required, you know, wealthy patrons. Um, sculptors tended to align themselves with governments and people in power who were commissioning public sculpture, public monuments. You know, the way to become a recognized sculptor and to actually even just have a viable career was to seek state sponsorship and commissions. Um, and so Carpo and many of the artists represented, Bartholdi, um, Cordier, uh, Udon, were all artists who were kind of desperately seeking large commissions. And so the nature of their work um, is, as I've already mentioned, sort of not subversive, but rather reflects the uh, priorities and values of, uh, of the state and of a more kind of mainstream audience. Is it known how many individual editions of this particular sculpture were created? Many, many, many. Um, you know, it, it's not known because they continue to come on the market. Um, you know, so the Mets marble version is one of only two known and one of only two recorded marble versions. Um, we do not know how many bronzes were made. We don't know how many plasters and terracottas were made. And even, you know, an art curial next month or this month, um, you know, another edition in terracotta has come on the market. So th there are many, many made, and they were also made in different scale. Um, you know, miniature versions were produced as well. Um, Wendy, I know you had, you know, thought more thoughts on, on different aspects of sculpture and its importance. Well, you know, one of the things I would say that makes this work so affecting is, you know, the immediacy of, the, of sculpture. And um, the work certainly has a sense of presence that I think is, you know, attracting to certain audiences. Um, and also, you know, for other audiences, it's attractive uh, because it is the kind of thing that can be possessed, right? So um, we see, you know, in this transition out of um, economies that are fueled primarily by you know the the slave economy, um, the the captive economy, there um, 
is you know a surge of wealth in all of these countries in France, uh, the United States, and the uh, UK. Um, and there is a sense that um, you know there's an emergent middle class in each of these in each of these uh, countries. Um, and with with that, the um, opportunities for buying and possessing works that represent people's class ascendancy are part of uh, the way they're establishing themselves. And so, you know, it, it's also not surprising to see multiples of, you know, Carpeau's work uh, in places where slavery has been abolished, but suddenly people are collecting images um, of black people, whether images in, in earlier abolitionist ephemera or in fine art objects uh, such as such as this one. Yeah, and sculpture, you know, it's such a it's a visceral medium and, and sculpture curators and people in the field often talk about the way sculpture kind of embodies space and takes up space and that we encounter sculptures as um, sort of you know, avatars of, of, of real bodies. And James Smalls in, in the book talks about this notion of ethnographic sculpture as these fictive surrogates for actual bodies. And so, you know, in that sense, I think the role played by sculpture in the construction of racial identity is really important um, and kind of crucial to address. And, and so, um, you know, the focus on sculpture is, uh, is, um, the focus on sculpture is intentional, yeah. And the book also discusses two works by contemporary artists, Kara Walker and Kehinde Wiley, that are specific references to this sculpture by Carpeau. Um, can you discuss the sculptures by Walker and Wiley and um, the, the significance of those two artists in particular connecting their works to this one? and more generally, why you think this work is still capturing the attention of, of artists today? So the Kara Walker piece, um, which is called, I believe it's called Negress, Kara Walker piece is called Negress, um, is a impression taken from one of Carpo's uh, one of Carpeau's busts. Um, so instead of a copy of the bust, it's a um, plaster mold taken from an impression of the figure's face. And that work is displayed typically on the floor. Um, it's illuminated by a small light. Uh, in our exhibition, it's illuminated by a small light. Uh, though when it was first exhibited, it was uh, illuminated by a candle. Um, and the work, uh, which is also on the back cover of the book, um, is particularly striking um, because of its hollowed outness and its uh, kind of, uh, the interiority of the figure is on display in some ways, um, in a way that is not possible to see in looking at the carpo. And because that figure's presence is depicted in a different way, the, the, the work itself has kind of a haunting um, atmospheric quality to it. Um, 
it requires uh, a different kind of attention. It, it's it's in some ways an uneasy piece uh, to look at, um, and it really brings to question, you know, who was this person that Carpo was attempting to capture uh, with the sculptural work, and um, you know, not only who who were they, but you know how how big is their absence uh, in the conversation around the work? Yeah, I you know, I think how big is that absence is really to the point and quite apt. Um, you know, Walker, in her silhouette works uh, that are much more familiar to audiences um, than her. Um, sculpture, um, you know, her cut silhouette works um, deal with this notion of void, uh, of negative space. And she does that so brilliantly in this work, um, you know, the same same idea of sort of delineating um, this bust, you know, tracing its contours, but then, but then also displacing it and leaving us with a hollow void. Um, which is really, really haunting and powerful in the space. And I, one aspect of the, the, the work that um, Wendy didn't sp speak to, but I think is a good sort of link to the Wiley is the materiality in the sense that, you know, she's made this from plaster, which is a material that is used in the process of sculptural reproduction. Um, so a plaster is taken of the original model, a, a mold is made, and from that mold, new casts are produced. But in this work, Walker has um, displaced that cast or, or um, you know, chooses not to produce it. She chooses to stop this process of replication and instead just leave us with that material, that working material that would typically be discarded. Um, and she, she just gives us that thing um, which is normally left left out of the final kind of visual work. And this idea of working with the um, making visible that which is not visible, to go back to Wendy's point, um, I think is central to the materiality of the work as well as its concept. And the same idea is held in Wiley's work where um, he's made this small, a, a miniature bust um, that depicts a black man wearing a Lakers jersey um, posed in the same pose as uh, Carpo's Wyborn enslaved. Um, and, and so the, the ropes and the nakedness have now been, you know, replaced with, um, with his uh, clothing and a Lakers, Lakers jersey, which kind of tethers him to his base. And the work is made from cast marble dust, um, marble dust mixed with resin to create this kind of plasticky material, a kind of synthetic material that looks superficially like marble. Um, and of course it contains marble, but but looks really like a kind of replica made from it. And And so, this notion of, of marble dust, again, the kind of debris or waste of sculptural creation um, in creating this depiction of a black figure from it, um, I think is a really powerful metaphor 
um, you know, what is Kahinda Wiley's larger artistic project? It's one about making um, those which have been invisible visible. Um, and and uh, here he kind of takes that material which has been discarded um, and lost and, and brings it together to kind of cohere into an image and to sort of materialize into an image of, of um, figures that have been not represented or misrepresented. Um, and in terms of the, you know, um, other associations with this work, you know, the Lakers jersey is very uh, poignant. Um, I think that he seems to be, you know, drawing a connection between enslavement and the sports economy. Um, this notion of black athletes as being sort of owned, um, exploited by a large industry, commercial, um, for, for profit, um, for entertainment. Um, and, and, and then also um, this notion of, you know, professional athletes as sort of false idols for a, you know, pathway to liberation that may be um, not realistic. Um, so it's a very, it's a very, um, I think, unexpected work from Wiley in some ways, because we associate m many of his large paintings with more heroic um, depictions of black figures who stand in for rulers, for emperors, for figures of power. And, and this is a, has a very different inflection where, you know, a contemporary black man is, is replacing the image of an enslaved woman. So it's really about sort of the legacy of enslavement, um, perhaps. Um, the work is called After La Negress 1872. Um, and that name actually refers directly to a terracotta in the Metz collection. Um, Wiley often worked from, you know, images he would find online, um, works, uh, not worked, but works from images he find, finds online. And it's very possible, probable that he um, used the image of the Metz terracotta version of Wyborn Enslaved, which was cataloged under the name Negress for many, many years um, and is part of, part of public domain. You know, the image um, was part of public domain and so it's very accessible um, to, to Wiley to use. And, and, you know, this speculation around the origins is because the date 1872 is the date, um, of the Mets bust. Um, so, um, you know, it seems actually that there's a very direct relationship between the Mets collection and this bust, uh, made by Wiley. Um, I, Wendy, I'm curious, you know, do you have more thoughts on, you know, why are artists today choosing to engage with Wyborn enslaved? Well, I do, but I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm wondering if we should talk about the book a little bit. I think the book is pretty exciting because it looks at both the aesthetic and political influences, um, you know, that would have intersected at the time that Carpo was creating Wyborn Enslaved. So there's a long tradi tradition and history of the vanquished, um, which Adrian Childs uh, takes up in her essay on the piece that precedes uh, Carpo's work. Um, and, you know, um, there's also a long history of, uh, you know, commerce and capitalism um, and, 
as it relates to the sudden growth of empire, which you know Elise takes up uh, in her uh, in her essay. Um, and then there's some really um, astute observations about contemporary works and sculptures um, in works by Iris Moon and Caitlin Beach, uh, connecting the gestures um, in contemporary sculpture to a tradition of ceramic and porcelain work um, that was also concurrent uh, to the time that Carpeau was creating. So, you know, that's one of the things that I think is really exciting about the book is it's looking at the book at, at the work in its time, but it's also looking at um, how that work existed in conversation with other significant works in art history that came before and after it. Agreed. And, you know, one thing about the book is its organization. Um, you'll notice that, you know, the, bo the book is sort of smaller scale in terms of its format, um, which is really accessible in terms of price point and and, and also um, you know it's a book that you can throw in your bag, and the book is organized. It has you know three essays to begin, following you know an intro, a preface by Sarah Lawrence and an intro by Wendy and myself, and then three three essays. And then at the center of the book is you know all the plates, and then three more essays. And this kind of actually reflects the organization of the exhibition itself, where Carpo's two versions of Wyborn Enslaved are kind of staggered and at the center of the gallery and then arrangements of works of art that are kind of thematically related to Carpo's bust are um, then around the bust uh, along the kind of perimeter um, of this single gallery. And so, you know, the, the book itself reflects this sort of organizational principle of these ideas that spin out from a single object. Um, and just to get back to sort of, you know, the contemporary aspect, I think one thing that Wendy and I thought about and that Caitlin Beach articulates well in her essay is that this work was really reproduced so much that it then, um, th that is one of the reasons why contemporary artists have engaged with it is because it's, because of its visibility, um, it became, you know, a work that was just widely known. And as Wendy mentioned earlier, then stood in for kind of representation broadly. Um, and so contemporary artists have engaged with it, perhaps in an effort to address that critically. And I think Wendy's contribution to the book, not just in her essay, but but also her poem, which she wrote about why born enslaved is one which really does this work of giving, you know, a voice um, and a person to um, this figure that has been, um, whose likeness has been used, but whose personhood is absent from Carpo's bust. Um, and so she, she wrote a poem called In the Gallery um, in response to the bust, um, which was actually created and written in 2019, long before the book and the exhibition came together, um, that sort of does that work um, as as well, thinking about absence and and um, histories that were lost and in, in ways to conjure them in the present.
Wendy, would you be willing to read the poem? The question that I'm that I was most interested in addressing around this work was the presumption that Perpo was acting um, in a, with a humanist impulse. And I was trying to decipher what led to that idea, what led to that presumption, um, other than kind of the notion that he had an inclusive studio. And, you know, I, I couldn't really find any uh, certain evidence that he he did hold these values, um, um, and so you know what what we're you know what I was trying to get to with that essay was that we can't necessarily we can't speculate. Um, we know what we know, um, and that tells us not not everything that we like to know about the work, but I, I think it's much better to stay within the realm of fact and um, use that fact for further understanding. So um, so that's, that's been kind of my impulse uh, along with this project. Um, maybe I'll read the poem now. Thank you. In the gallery. One, the woman I've been mistaken for is not myself. And yet I've developed an expression of agony to share despite being so long lonely. My name for now is my body, soft in flesh, but louder in stone. I find my way through years of silences after a life surrounded by enemies. The crowd comes to calibrate beauty, their eyes on me, and I am black. By this, I mean I own myself in marble or other measures cast to be splayed in passages eternal. Take care with those who think they're free, who claim the rope belongs to someone else, who took all they could gather in arms, who built machines to steal the rest. There is a language for this loss. None have learned to speak it, though I practice with eyes closed as if to learn from memory. Two, I am one unlikely to be here, and so is she who comes after me. So is the one after her who owns herself, despite a world of superstitions. The hall is not quite a cathedral, though the crowd singing overpowers the sleepwalkers who seek shadows despite the light's devotion. Imagine waking in the midst of a festival, looking in all directions for evidence of the soul's journey. Call it liberty. See how the room grows to accommodate my view. This is what walls can do. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both for the work that you did putting together the exhibition and the book. Um, that as you mentioned, Elise, the book is really does a marvelous job of both kind of tracking the exhibition, but also being a fantastic and thought provoking reading book that is very, a very uh, welcoming, welcoming book to sit down with and devote some time to. I hope that people take the opportunity to do that. And thank you again, both of you for making the time to talk to me today about it.
Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. The exhibition Fictions of Emancipation Carpo Recast will be on view at the Met until March 5th, 2023. And the book Fictions of Emancipation Carpo's Why Born Enslaved Reconsidered can be purchased now wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.